6, and marched into Dublin, and after several reverses compelled Malachy Malsachlain, the chief king of Ireland, who ruled in Neath, to bow before him in 1002. Connaught was his next objective. Here and also in Ulster he was successful. Everywhere he received hostages and tribute, and he was generally recognized as the Ardry, or chief king of Ireland. After a period of comparative quiet Brian was again at war with the Danes of Dublin, and on the 23rd of April 1014 his forces gained a great victory over them at Clontarf. After this battle, however, the old king was slain in his tent, and was buried at Armagh. Brian has enjoyed a great and not a deserved reputation. One of his charters is still preserved in Trinity College, Dublin, C.E.A. Dalton, History of Ireland, Volume I 1903, B.R.I.A. and a strongly fortified town in the Department of Oates-Alpes in Assy, France. It is built at a height of 43-34 feet on a plateau which dominates the junction of the Durance with the Gisane. The town itself is formed of very steep and narrow, though picturesque streets, as it lies at the foot of the descent from the Mont Genevra Pass, giving access to Turin. A great number of fortifications have been constructed on the heights around Briancon, especially towards the east. The Fort Janus is no less than 4,000 feet above the town. The parish church, with its two towers, was built 1703-1726, and occupies a very conspicuous position. The Pont d'Asfeld, E of the town, was built in 1734, and forms an arch of 131 feet span, thrown at a height of 184 feet across the Durance. The modern town extends in the plain at the SW foot of the plateau on which the old town is built and forms the suburb of Stkaterin, with the railway station, and an important silk weaving factory. Briancon is 511 to meters by rail from Gap. The commune had a civil population in 1906 of 4883 urban population 3130, while the permanent garrison was 2641 and all 7524 inhabitants. Briancon was the brigadium of the Romans and formed part of the kingdom of King Cotys. About 1040 it came into the hands of the counts of Heldon later Dauphins of the Viennois and thenceforth shared the fate of the Dauphine. The Brianconis included not merely the upper valley of the Durance with those of its affluents, the Gironde and the Gil, but also the valley of the Dora Riparia Chizan, Olks, Bardnech and Exils, and that of the Chizone Fenestrels, Parouse. Bridgeless these glens all lying on the eastern slope of the chain of the Alps, but by the Treaty of Utrecht 1713 all these valleys were handed over to Savoy in exchange for that of Barcelona. On the west slope of the Alps, in 1815 Briancon successfully withstood a siege of three months at the hands of the Allies, a feat which is commemorated by an inscription on one of its gates, El Passe Ripon de l'Avenir, W-A-B-C-B-R-I-A-N-D, French statesman, was born at Nantes, of a bourgeois family, he studied law, and while still young took to politics, associating himself with the most advanced movements, writing articles for the anarchist journal Pupley, and directing the lantern for some time, from this he passed to the Petite Republic, leaving it to found, with Jean Joris, a humanite, at the same time he was prominent in the movement for the formation of labor unions and at the Congress of Working Men at Nantes in 1894 he secured the adoption of the labor union idea against the adherents of Jules Gazda. From that time, Brion became one of the leaders of the French Socialist Party. In 1902, after several unsuccessful attempts, he was elected deputy. He declared himself a strong partisan of the union of the left in what is known as the Bloc. 
in order to check the reactionary deputies of the right. From the beginning of his career in the Chamber of Deputies, Brion was occupied with the question of the separation of church and state. He was appointed reporter of the commission charged with the preparation of the law, and his masterly report at once marked him out as one of the coming leaders. He succeeded in carrying his project through with but slight modifications, and without dividing the parties upon whose support he relied. He was the principal author of the law of separation, but, not content with preparing it, he wished to apply it as well, especially as the existing Ruvire V.04P.0516 ministry allowed disturbances to occur during the taking of inventories of church property, a clause of the law for which Brion was not responsible. Consequently he accepted the portfolio of public instruction and worship in the Syrian ministry 1906. So far as the chamber was concerned his success was complete, but the acceptance of a portfolio in a bourgeois ministry led to his exclusion from the Unified Socialist Party March 1906. As opposed to Joris, he contended that the Socialists should company operate actively with the radicals in all matters of reform, and not stand aloof to await the complete fulfillment of their ideals. Brianza, a district of Lombardy, Italy, forming the south part of the province of Como, between the two southern arms of the lake of that name. It is thickly populated and remarkable for its fertility, and being hilly is a favorite summer resort of the Milanese. Briari, a town of north-central France in the department of Loire on the right bank of the Loire, 451 2 meters Asia or Leon on the railway to Nevers. Pop. 1906-46-13. Briaray, the Brevodorum of the Romans, is situated at the extremity of the canal of Briaray, which unites the Loire and its lateral canal with the Loing and so with the same. The canal of Briaray was constructed from 1605 to 1642 and is about 36 meters long. The industries include the manufacture of fine pottery, and of so-called porcelain buttons made of felspar and milk by a special process, its inventor, Bacterophis, has a bust in the town. The canal traffic is in wood, iron, coal, building materials, and sea. A modern hospital and church, and the Hotel de Ville installed in an old moat chateau, are the chief buildings. The lateral canal of the Loire crosses the Loire near Briarade by a fine canal bridge 720 yards in length. Briarius, or Ajaeolan, in Greek mythology, one of the 300-armed, 50-headed Hecatonchiers, brother of Cotus and Gyges or Gyges. According to Homer Iliad I-403 he was called Aegean by men, and Briarus by the gods. He was the son of Poseidon or Uranus and Gia. The legends regarding him and his brothers are various and somewhat contradictory. According to the most widely spread myth, Briarus and his brothers were called by Zeus to his assistance when the Titans were making war upon Olympus. The gigantic enemies were defeated and consigned to Tartarus, at the gates of which the three brothers were placed Hesiod, Theog. 624, 639, 714. Other accounts make Briarus one of the assailants of Olympus, who, after his defeat, was buried under Mount Etna Calimachus. Hindu Delos, 141. Homer mentions him as assisting Zeus when the other Olympian deities were plotting against the king of gods and men. Iliad I 398. Another tradition makes him a giant of the sea, ruler of the fabulous Aegea in Euboea. An enemy of Poseidon and the inventor of warships Shaw, Onipole, Rod, I-1165. It would be difficult to determine exactly what natural phenomena are symbolized by the Hecatonchiers, 
they may represent the gigantic forces of nature which appear in earthquakes and other convulsions, or the multitudinous motion of the sea waves mayor, die gigantin and titanin, 1887, bribery from the OFR, bribery, begging or vagrancy, bribe, mid, lap, briba, signifying a piece of bread given to beggars, the ang, bribe, has passed through the meanings of alms, blackmail and extortion, to gifts received or given in order to influence corruptly. The public offense of bribery may be defined as the offering or giving of payment in some shape or form that it may be a motive in the performance of functions for which the proper motive ought to be a conscientious sense of duty. When this is superseded by the sordid impulses created by the bribe, a person is said to be corrupted, and thus corruption is a term sometimes held equivalent to bribery. The offense may be divided into two great classes the one where a person invested with power is induced by payment to use it unjustly, the other where power is obtained by purchasing the suffrages of those who can impart it. It is a natural propensity, removable only by civilization or some powerful counteracting influence, to feel that every element of power is to be employed as much as possible for the owner's own behoof, and that its benefits should be conferred not on those who best deserve them, but on those who will pay most for them. Hence judicial corruption is an inveterate vice of imperfect civilization. There is and perhaps no other crime on which the force of law if unaided by public opinion and morals, can have so little influence, for in other crimes, such as violence or fraud, there is generally some person immediately injured by the act, who can give his aid in the detection of the offender, but in the perpetration of the offense of bribery all the immediate parties obtain what they desire, and are satisfied. The purification of the bench from judicial bribery has been gradual in most of the European countries. In France it received an impulse in the 16th century from the high-minded Chancellor, Mitchell de Hoppel. In England judicial corruption has been a crime of remarkable rarity. Indeed, with the exception of a statute of 1384 repealed by the Statute Law Revision Act 1881 there has been no legislation relating to judicial bribery. The earliest recorded case was that of Sir William Thorpe, who in 1351 was fined and removed from office for accepting bribes. Other celebrated cases were those of Michael de la Pole, Chancellor of England, in 1387, Lord Chancellor Bacon in 1621, Lionel Cronfield, Earl of Middlesex, in 1624, and Sir Thomas Parker, 1st Earl of Macclesfield, in 1725. In Scotland for some years after the Revolution the bench was not without a suspicion of interested partiality, but since the beginning of the 19th century, at least. There has been in all parts of the empire a perfect reliance on its purity. The same may be said of the higher class of ministerial officers. There is no doubt that in the period from the revolution to the end of Queen Anne's reign, when a speaker of the House of Commons was expelled for bribery, and the great Marlborough could not clear his character from pecuniary dishonesty, there was much corruption in the highest official quarters. The level of the offense of official bribery has gradually descended until it has become an extremely rare thing for the humbler officers connected with the revenue to be charged with it. It has had a more lingering existence with those who, because their power is more of a constitutional than an official character, have been deemed less responsible to the public. During Walpole's administration there is no doubt that members of Parliament were paid in cash for votes, and the memorable saying, that every man has his price, has been preserved as a characteristic indication of his method of government. One of the forms in which administrative corruption is most difficult of eradication is the appointment to office. It is sometimes maintained that the purity which characterizes the administration of justice is here unattainable. 
because in giving a judgment there is but one form in which it can be justly given, but when an office has to be filled many people may be equally fitted for it, and personal motives must influence a choice. It very rarely happens, however, that direct bribery is supposed to influence such appointments. It does not appear that bribery was conspicuous in England until, in the early part of the 18th century, constituencies had thrown off the feudal dependence which lingered among them, and, indeed, it is often said, that bribery is essentially the defect of a free people, since it is the sale of that which is taken from others without payment. In English law bribery of a privy councillor or a juryman see embracery is punishable as a misdemeanor, as is the taking of a bribe by any judicial or ministerial officer. The buying and selling of public offices is also regarded at common law as a form of bribery. By the Customs Consolidation Act 1876, any officer in the customs service is liable to instant dismissal and a penalty of L500 for taking a bribe and any person offering or promising a bribe or reward to an officer to neglect his duty or conceal or connive at any act by which the customs may be evaded shall forfeit the sum of L200. Under the Inland Revenue Regulations Act 1890, the bribery of commissioners, collectors, officers or other persons employed in relation to the Inland Revenue involves a fine of L500. The Merchant Shipping Act 1894, SS. 112 and 398 makes provision for certain offenses in the nature of bribery. Bribery Island by the Extradition Act 1906, V.04P.0517 An extraditable offense. Administrative corruption was dealt with in the Public Bodies Corrupt Practices Act 1889. The public bodies concerned are county councils, town or borough councils, boards, commissioners, select vestries and other bodies having local government, public health or poor law powers and having for those purposes to administer rates raised under public general acts, the giving or receiving, promising, offering, soliciting or agreeing to receive any gift, fee, loan or advantage by any person as an inducement for any act or forbearance by a member, officer or servant of a public body in regard to the affairs of that body is made a misdemeanor in England and Ireland and a crime and offense in Scotland. Prosecution under the Act requires the consent of the Attorney or Solicitor General in England or Ireland and of the Lord Advocate in Scotland. Conviction renders liable to imprisonment with or without hard labor for a term not exceeding two years, and to a fine not exceeding L500. In addition to or in lieu of imprisonment, the offender may also be ordered to pay to the public body concerned any bribe received by him, he may be adjudged incapable for seven years of holding public office, i.e. the position of member officer or servant of a public body, and if already an officer or servant, besides forfeiting his place, he is liable at the discretion of the court to forfeit his right to compensation or pension. On a second conviction he may be adjudged forever incapable of holding public office, and for seven years incapable of being registered or of voting as a parliamentary elector, or as an elector of members of a public body. An offense under the Act may be prosecuted and punished under any other Act applicable thereto or at common law, but no person is to be punished twice for the same offense. Bribery at political elections was at common law punishable by indictment or information, but numerous statutes have been passed dealing with it as a corrupt practice. In this sense, the word is elastic in meaning and may embrace any method of corruptly influencing another for the purpose of securing his vote see corrupt practices. Bribery at elections of fellows, scholars, officers and other persons in colleges cathedral and collegiate churches, 
hospitals and other societies was prohibited in 1588-1589 by statute 31 LIs, C6. If a member receives any money, fee, reward or other profit for giving his vote in favor of any candidate, he forfeits his own place, if for any such consideration he resigns to make room for a candidate, he forfeits double the amount of the bribe, and the candidate by or on whose behalf a bribe is given or promised is incapable of being elected on that occasion. The act is to be read at every election of fellows, and see, under a penalty of L40 in case of default, by the same act any person for corrupt consideration presenting, instituting or inducting to an ecclesiastical benefice or dignity forfeits two years value of the benefice or dignity, the corrupt presentation is void, and the right to present lapses for that term to the crown, and the corrupt present he is disabled from thereafter holding the same benefice or dignity, a corrupt institution or induction is void, and the patron may present, for a corrupt resignation or exchange of a benefice the giver and taker of a bribe forfeit each double the amount of the bribe, any person corruptly procuring the ordaining of ministers or granting of licenses to preach forfeits L40, and the person so ordained forfeits L10 and for seven years is incapacitated from holding any ecclesiastical benefice or promotion. In the United States the offense of bribery is very severely dealt with. In many states, bribery or the attempt to bribe is made a felony, and is punishable with varying terms of imprisonment. In some jurisdictions it may be with a period not exceeding ten years. The offense of bribery at elections is dealt with on much the same lines as in England, voiding the election and disqualifying the offender from holding any office. Bribery may also take the form of a secret commission Q via profit made by an agent, in the course of his employment, without the knowledge of his principal. BRIC a BRIC a French word, formed by a kind of onomatopoeia, meaning a heterogeneous collection of odds and ends, CF, de brick et de brock corresponding to our, by hook or by crook, or by reduplication from brack, refuse, objects of, virtu, a collection of old furniture, china, play and curiosities, brick derived according to some etymologists from the Teutonic brique, a discord plate, but more authoritatively, through the French brick, originally a, broken piece, applied especially to bread, and so to clay, from the Teutonic bricken, to break, a kind of artificial stone generally made of burnt clay, and largely used as a building material. History. The art of making brick states from very early times, and was practiced by all the civilized nations of antiquity. The earliest burnt bricks known are those found on the sites of the ancient cities of Babylonia, and it seems probable that the method of making strong and durable bricks, by burning blocks of dried clay, was discovered in this corner of Asia. We know at least that while burnt bricks were made by the Babylonians more than 6,000 years ago, and that they were extensively used in the time of Sir Ghanabakid C. 3800 BC, the site of the ancient city of Babylon is still marked by huge mounds of bricks, the ruins of its great walls, towers and palaces, although it has been the custom for centuries to carry away from these heaps the bricks required for the building of the modern towns in the surrounding country. The Babylonians and Assyrians attained to a high degree of proficiency in brick-making, notably in the manufacture of bricks having a coating of colored glaze or enamel, which they largely used for wall decoration. The Chinese claim great antiquity for their clay industries, but it is not improbable that the knowledge of brick-making traveled eastwards from Babylonia across the whole of Asia. It is believed that the art of making glazed bricks, so highly developed afterwards by the Chinese, found its way across Asia from the west, through Persia and northern India, to China, 
The Great Wall of China was constructed partly umbrut, both burnt and inbert, but this was built at a comparatively late period c. 210 BC and there is nothing to show that the Chinese had any knowledge of burnt bricks when the art flourished in Babylonia. Brick making formed the chief occupation of the Israelites during their bondage in Egypt, but in this case the bricks were probably sun-dried only, and not burnt. These bricks were made of a mixture of clay and chopped straw or reeds, worked into a stiff paste with water. The clay was the river mud from the banks of the Nile, and as this had not sufficient cohesion in itself, the chopped straw or reeds was added as a binding material. The addition of such substances increases the plasticity of wet clay, especially if the mixture is allowed to stand for some days before use, so that the action of the chopped straw was twofold, a fact possibly known to the Egyptians. These sun-dried bricks, or adobes, are still made, as of old, on the banks of the Nile by the following method, a shallow pit or bed is prepared, into which are thrown the mud, chopped straw and water in suitable proportions, and the whole mass is tramped on until it is thoroughly mixed and of the proper consistence. This mixture is removed in lumps and shaped into bricks, in molds or by hand, the bricks being simply sun-dried. Pliny mentions that three kinds of bricks were made by the Greeks but there is no indication that they were used to any great extent, and probably the walls of Athens on the side towards Mount Hymettus were the most important brick structures in ancient Greece. The Romans became masters of the brickmaker's art, though they probably acquired much of their knowledge in the East, during their occupation of Egypt and Greece. In any case they revived and extended the manufacture of bricks about the beginning of the Christian era, exercising great care in the selection and preparation of their clay and introducing the method of burning bricks in kilns. They carried their knowledge and their methods throughout Western Europe, and there is abundant evidence that they made bricks extensively in Germany and in Britain. Although brickmaking was thus introduced into Britain nearly 2,000 years ago, the art seems to have been lost when the Romans withdrew from the country, and it is doubtful whether any burnt bricks were made in England from that time until the 13th century. Such bricks as were used during this long V.04 P.0518 period were generally taken from the remains of Roman buildings, as at Colchester and St. Albans Abbey, one of the earliest existing brick buildings, erected after the revival of brickmaking in England, is Little Wenham Hall, in Suffolk, built about A.D. 1210, but it was not until the 15th century that bricks came into general use again, and then only for important edifices, during the reign of Henry the III. Brickmaking was brought to great perfection, probably by workmen brought from Flanders, and the older portions of Street James's Palace and Hampton Court Palace remain to testify to the skill then attained. In the 16th century bricks were increasingly used, but down to the Great Fire of London, in 1666, the smaller buildings, shops and dwelling houses, were constructed of timber framework filled in with lath and plaster. In the rebuilding of London after the fire, bricks were largely used and from the end of the 17th century to the present day they have been almost exclusively used in all ordinary buildings throughout the country, except in those districts where building stone is plentiful and good brick clay is not readily procurable. The bricks made in England before 1625 were of many sizes, there being no recognized standard, but in that year the sizes were regulated by statute, and the present standard size was adopted, viz. 9x41 to x3 in. In 1784 a tax was levied on bricks, which was not repealed until 1850. The tax averaged about 4s, 70, per thousand on ordinary bricks, and special bricks were still more heavily taxed. 
The first brick buildings in America were erected on Manhattan Island in the year 1633 by a governor of the Dutch West India Company. These bricks were made in Holland, where the industry had long reached great excellence, and for many years bricks were imported into America from Holland and from England. In America Burt bricks were first made at New Haven about 1650, and the manufacture slowly spread through the New England states, but for many years the homemade article was inferior to that imported from Europe. The Dutch and the Germans were the great brickmakers of Europe during the Middle Ages, although the Italians, from the 14th to the 15th century, revived and developed the art of decorative brickwork or terracotta, and discovered the method of applying colored enamels to these materials. Under the Delarabias, in the 15th century, some of the finest work of this class that the world has seen was executed, but it can scarcely be included under brickwork. Brick clays. All clays are the result of the denudation and decomposition of felspathic and silicious rocks, and consist of the fine insoluble particles which have been carried in suspension in water and deposited in geologic basins according to their specific gravity and degree of fineness sea clay. These deposits have been formed in all geologic epochs from the recent to the Cambrian, and they vary in hardness from the soft and plastic alluvial clays to the hard and rock-like shales and slates of the older formations. The alluvial and drift clays which were alone used for brickmaking until modern times are found near the surface, are readily worked and require little preparation, whereas the older sedimentary deposits are often difficult to work and necessitate the use of heavy machinery. These older shales, or rocky clays, may be brought into plastic condition by long weathering i.e. by exposure to a rain, frost and sun or by crushing and grinding in water, and they then resemble ordinary alluvial clays in every respect. The clays or earths from which burnt bricks are made may be divided into two principal types. According to chemical composition, one clays or shales containing only a small percentage of carbonate of lime and consisting chiefly of hydrated aluminium silicates the true clay substance with more or less sand and decomposed grains of felspar and oxide or carbonate of iron. These clays usually burn to above salmon or red color. Two clays containing a considerable percentage of carbonate of lime in addition to the substances above mentioned. These latter clay deposits are known as marls, and may contain as much as 40 of chalk. They burn to a sulfur yellow color which is quite distinctive. Brick clays of class 1 are very widely distributed, and have a more extensive geological range than the marls, which are found in connection with chalk or limestone formations only. These ordinary brick clays vary considerably in composition and many clays, as they are found in nature, are unsuitable for brickmaking without the addition of some other kind of clay or sand. The strongest brick clays, i.e. those possessing the greatest plasticity and tensile strength, are usually those which contain the highest percentage of the hydrated aluminium silicates. Although the exact relation of plasticity to chemical composition has not yet been determined, this statement cannot be applied indiscriminately to all clays but may be taken as fairly applicable to clays of one general type sea clay. All clays contain more or less free silica in the form of sand, and usually a small percentage of decomposed felspar. The most important ingredient, after the clay substance and the sand, is oxide of iron, for the color, and, to a less extent, the hardness and durability of the burnt bricks depend on its presence. The amount of oxide of iron in these clays varies from about 2 to 10 and the color of the bricks varies accordingly from light buff to chocolate, although the color developed by a given percentage of oxide of iron is influenced by the other substances present and also by the method of firing. 
a clay containing from 5 to 8 of oxide of iron will, under ordinary conditions of firing, produce a red brick, but if the clay contains 3 to 4 of alkalis, or the brick is fired too hard, the color will be darker and more purple. The actions of the alkalis and of increased temperature are probably closely related, for in either case the clay is brought nearer to its fusion point, and ferrugenous clays generally become darker in color as they approach to fusion. Alumina acts in the opposite direction, an excess of this compound tending to make the color lighter and brighter. It is impossible to give a typical composition for such clays, as the percentages of the different constituents vary through such wide ranges. The clay substance may vary from 15 to 80, the free silica or sand from 5 to 80, the oxide of iron from 1 to 10, the carbonates of lime and magnesia together, from 1 to 5, and the alkalis from 1 to 4. Organic matter is always present, and other impurities which frequently occur are the sulfates of lime and magnesia, the chlorides and nitrates of soda and potash, and iron pyrites. The presence of organic matter gives the wet clay a greater plasticity, probably because it forms a kind of mucilage which adds a certain viscosity and adhesiveness to the natural plasticity of the clay. In some of the coal measure shales the amount of organic matter is very considerable, and may render the clay useless for brick making. The other impurities, all of which, except the pyrites, are soluble in water, are undesirable, as they give rise to scum, which produces patchy color and pent faces on the bricks. The commonest soluble impurity is calcium sulfate, which produces a whitish scum on the face of the brick in drying, and as the scum becomes permanently fixed in burning, such bricks are of little use except for common work. This question of scumming is very important to the maker of high-class facing and molded bricks, and where a clay containing calcium sulfate must be used, a certain percentage of barium carbonate is nowadays added to the wet clay. By this means the calcium sulfate is converted into calcium carbonate which is insoluble in water, so that it remains distributed throughout the mass of the brick instead of being deposited on the surface. The presence of magnesium salts is also very objectionable as these generally remain in the burnt brick as magnesium sulfate, which gives rise to an efflorescence of fine white crystals after the bricks are built into position. Clays which are strong or plastic are known as fat clays, and they always contain a high percentage of true clay substance, and, consequently, a low percentage of sand. Such clays take up a considerable amount of water in tempering, they dry slowly, shrink greatly and so become liable to lose their shape and develop cracks in drying and firing. Fat clays are greatly improved by the addition of coarse sharp sand, V.04P.0519 which reduces the time of drying and the shrinkage, and makes the brick more rigid during the firing. Coarse sand, and like clay substance, is practically unaffected during the drying and firing, and is a desirable if not a necessary ingredient of all brick clays. The best brick clays feel gritty between the fingers, they should, of course, be free from pebbles, sufficiently plastic to be molded into shape and strong enough when dried to be safely handled. All clays are greatly improved by being turned over and exposed to the weather, or by standing for some months in a wet condition. This weathering and aging of clay is particularly important where bricks are made from tempered clay, i.e. clay in the wet or plastic state, where bricks are made from shale. In the semi-plastic condition, whether I, 